We come again to our study and continue looking at what is before us, trusting that the Lord will speak. And we're going to read from verse 9. We'll read from that verse through verse 12. Our focus this morning is verses 11 and 12. Follow on from what we looked at last Lord's Day. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Amen. This is the authoritative word of God. It is our privilege and honor to have heard it. May it come with power to your hearts. Let us all pray. Our God and Father, we come before Thee. We are thankful for the singing this morning. It has ministered to our hearts. It has helped us rejoice in what the Lord Jesus has done for us. It has brought conviction and reminders in relation to the expectation that there is for everyone that names the name of Christ. And so, as we consider the Word of God, we pray that it will be with profit. Thou knowest the condition of every heart. Lord, I cannot see into any heart, but Thou knowest. And I pray that Thou wilt be pleased to bring the searchlight of Thy Word and cause it to be a tremendous help to us as we understand where we are before Thee, and as we endeavor to bring glory to Thy name. For this is our chief end, that we would enjoy Thee, that we would glorify Thee, that our whole being would be focused upon magnifying the person of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bless us then, we pray. Enable us this morning to understand and give to this preacher that help that must come from Thee, the help of the Spirit. Lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. It is impossible, beloved, to overstate the importance of love in the Christian life. I made mention of that somewhat last Lord's Day with relation to if we were to summarize the Christian life and the Lord's expectation of his people, how would we summarize it but in the word love? The Lord expects us to manifest that, to have a focus upon it. I did not read 1 Corinthians 13 with you last Lord's Day, but I'll read some verses to you now where the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity or love, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. 
doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Last week, as we looked at verses 9 and 10, I endeavored to leave before you the vital aspect of our lives that relates to loving our brethren. And this cannot be overstated. As I say, love in any form cannot be overstated as long as we stay true to a proper understanding of what love is. But here in verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul deals with a matter that obviously was an issue in the church. There was a problem. The church was struggling to manifest love toward one another. They were not struggling to show this to others. They were not struggling to show it to other churches and congregations that were springing up. They were loving them, helping them, supporting them, as verse 10 tells us. But they needed help within their own context. And the apostle writes, as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. You don't need me to elaborate on this. You don't need me to develop this aspect, this subject. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And I reminded you of the fact that if we have the Spirit of God, if we truly belong to the Lord, then the Spirit that is within us will compel us to love the brethren. It will not be an option. It will be something that will be manifest within every child of God. They will love the brethren. Not to say we won't struggle sometimes, not to say it may be more difficult at some occasions, on some occasions, but at the same time, there will always be this sense of responsibility and calling to love the brethren. And if we don't, well, I'll not go over last week's message, but it is a very solemn thing to not love the brethren. And the Lord wants us to love. He wants us to love in ways that are difficult. We know that He calls us to love our enemies, Matthew chapter 5. He expects us to manifest the character of our God the one who sends the rain upon the just and on the unjust. And he expects us then to be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. And that's why we're called then to love your enemies. But while that is a high standard, to love our enemies, to love those that are at odds with us, to love those that oppose the gospel that we treasure, how much higher are we called to love those that are the Lord's people? And there is a difference. There is a difference. Because the Spirit of God abides and dwells within every genuine child of God, there is something in me and something in them that ought not to be in conflict. They have the Spirit of God. I have the Spirit of God. We are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore there is a a pulling together that cannot be ignored, and a love that should be manifested that far exceeds any other love in relation to our fellow men. To love those that profess and know Christ, to love them as Christ has loved us. This is the calling. And to find difficulty in this, in this church that was renowned for its love and for its zeal and for its passion and for its labor, Yet it's not surprising that they had some struggle with this particular aspect because it's not a new thing for Christians to struggle to love one another in the way that they ought. And so having dealt with brotherly love broadly, 
having looked at it in its general sense in verses 9 and 10, we come into verses 11 and 12 where Paul develops this and gives us help in how to love one another in the fashion that is expressed to us in the Word of God. I mean, you think about what Paul says about love, and we can give everything we have to feed the poor. We can give our bodies in martyrdom. If we don't have love, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one iota. And love suffers long. I mean, you think about this. If we are to express this anywhere, it must be to the Lord's people. My love must suffer long. It must be kind. It must not envy. It must not vaunt itself up and be puffed up. It shouldn't behave itself unseemly or in a way that is uncharacteristic of the Christian. It shouldn't be seeking her own. It shouldn't be easily provoked. It shouldn't think any evil. My, what a difference it would be if Christians consistently lived out the plain expressions of the Word of God. That we would not rejoice in iniquity, but only rejoice in the truth. And that we would bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things, especially among the body of Christ. Our points here this morning in verses 11 and 12, they all really begin with the words, that ye, look at it, verse 11, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Verse 12, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. We broke up the text in that way as we consider this morning promoting and preserving brotherly love. Promoting and preserving brotherly love because these verses are not out of context of what we dealt with last Lord's Day. So let us keep then this subject in mind as we progress and see, first of all, there must be a required ambition. There must be a required ambition. Look at verse 11. And that ye study to be quiet. It states here this ambition that we are to have, that we study to be quiet. The word study really means to be ambitious, to have a sense of striving earnestly and laboring. There's an ambition here that's within the heart of the individual that is endeavoring to do what the Apostle Paul commands, that you study, that you be ambitious, that you aim towards this, that this is your goal, that you're called to make it your aim, your study, your labor, to be quiet. The word quiet just means to rest or be silent or to cease. And so we are to make our ambition, our goal, to be quiet, to rest. Now what has that got to do with brotherly love? Well, John Gill tells us, that Baptist preacher of a bygone era, he says about dealing with the calling that is upon believers here, quote, to live peaceably, this is Christians, are to live peaceably in their own families and give no disturbance to other families by tail-bearing, whispering, and backbiting. He goes on to say, and not to create and encourage factions, divisions, animosities, and contentions in their own church or in any of the churches of Christ. Now, the believer then is called, rather than to be causing trouble, to be bringing peace. And he is to make his ambition to spread and establish peace within his own realm, his own heart, and within the community in which he exists. This, this could even go on beyond the church into the community itself. 
that the believer is called to study, make it his ambition to be quiet, to cease, to rest, rather than to strive and to stir up trouble. This is to be our study. This is to be our ambition. So this is the ambition stated plainly, that you study to be quiet. But then we have the ambition aided. We are helped in a certain way by what Paul says, and to do your own business and to work with your own hands. Here Paul gives advice to aid the goal of quietness within the body of Christ. Do your own business. Or we might say, mind your own business. That we mind our own business. That we give focus to our own affairs. The Jews refer to it as Derek Eretz, which means the way of life. And the way of life is the way one should live. The character of the individual And he is to focus upon his own affairs. And this is what Paul is calling the Christian to do. To do your own business. To focus on your own affairs and to work with your own hands. It's a limitation, essentially. It's limiting what we give ourselves to do. That we are to focus upon our own business. That is my priority. And that I am to furthermore understand what is my business... And what is my business doesn't belong to someone else and isn't to become someone else's business. Now I know, let me just say in case I misunderstood, I know there are things we are to share. And we are to, as Paul tells us in Galatians, to bear one another's burdens. I understand that. There is a sharing that is involved. But there are things that we ought not to share. There are things that relate to our own business. And we could do far more damage than help by letting people know or spreading the matter, whatever it might be. And so we focus upon our own business. We give ourselves to our own affairs. This is to be our focus and attention. But, but this also relates to others. We are not to meddle in the affairs of other people. So the question may be asked, well, what if, what if someone needs my help? What if they need my help? Well, if you understand that it is your help that they need not someone else's help, then go ahead. Go ahead, get involved. But remember the context. The context here is about preserving love among the brethren. And there are matters at times that we are not to get involved in because it will not preserve love among the brethren. It will destroy love among the brethren. And there are things that we need to understand that's that's simply not my business. It's not my realm. It's not my territory. It's not for me to meddle in or get involved with. It's just not my responsibility. We had a great illustration of this yesterday when we were at the senior's home, the residential home just on the other side of the Haywood Road. And we were waiting for some of the seniors to gather. And this gentleman came down the hallway and just right in front of me he stumbled and fell onto the ground. And I got down and I held his hand and as I was holding his hand and he was starting to pull like he wanted me to pull up and our sister Carrie just said, no, no, you, you, stay, you stay where you are. We'll get someone to come and help. And that's the right advice. You don't pick someone up. You don't, if, a, if a senior falls down in that context, it's not my business to lift them up. It's the business of a staff member to do that. And so I just, I just sat there beside him trying to keep him calm and held his hand waiting for a staff member to come and to do their business, not my business. 
But this happens, and we, we have these scenarios within the body of Christ at times, where matters arise, where things can arise within the body of Christ, and people think it's their business and it's not. There's a reason why there's structure within the body of Christ and within the world at large. There's a reason why we're not all politicians. The politicians have their business to deal with, and we elect them to deal with that business, and we hope that they deal with it in the right fashion, but that becomes their business, not really our business in the day-to-day affairs of things. It's the same within the workplace. You don't go into your boss, the one who employs you, and get meddled with how he's spending his money telling him what machines he should buy or what staff he should hire. That's not your business. That's his business or the hiring department of the firm. It's not your business. And it's the same within the family. There are matters sometimes of discipline within the family, and those of us with families know that sometimes a sibling will get involved, especially an older sibling, and begin to you know, speak their mind what should happen to the other sibling, or even themselves begin to reprimand verbally the other uh, sibling when they haven't been given the responsibility. And sometimes we come into it and we have to reprimand both. Look, this is none of your business and let me handle it. And it's the same within the body of Christ. We have elders. Elders are there to handle certain business of the church. And whenever it spreads beyond, when there's responsibility that is specific to their, their duty, their job before God, and others begin to meddle, it doesn't create harmony, it creates disharmony. It begins to split the body of Christ, divide the people of God, and cause the kind of disharmony that evidently was going on here in this congregation in Thessalonica. So we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful when we hear of issues within the body of Christ something happens within a family, something occurs with an individual. These things we must be very careful. And if it comes to us, then the question should be, do the elders know? And if the elders know and the elders are taking care of it, then that's fine. You say, that's their business. I don't have to lose sleep over it. That's their job. And I can go on my way and I can simply pray about it. We need to be aware of these things and we need to exercise what the Lord calls us to be and to do. When there's matters that involve two or more parties, you need to be very careful in how speaking about the matter and listening to the matter and spreading the matter can create disharmony within the body of Christ. We are warned throughout the book of Proverbs, but one particular verse that is very helpful to keep in mind whenever something is being spread or a story or a matter or a detail about someone's life begins to break out. Remember Proverbs. I always try to remember Proverbs 18, verse 17. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just. The person that first speaks to the issue seems to be, wow, I can't believe that. How? I can't believe that happened to you. I can't believe he said that or she said that or did that or whatever. And you respond to it. You respond to it in a way where you feed it and you fan the flame and if you carry it on, you only cause it to be worse. But how many times have we learned from personal experience that the first thing we heard wasn't exactly the entire context of what is going on? It's not all the details. And so the person who tells the story first, seeking to win the cause to their own side, 
brings disharmony in the body of Christ. And maybe someone on another side, they have a choice to make. Do I sit and wait and trust the Lord will teach these people? Or do I try to justify my own name and get into it and probably cause more division than to help the matter? There's nothing new under the sun. This was going on in the church. And Paul says, look, look, brotherly love is essential. I don't need to tell you that. You've been taught of God, verse 9. And you're manifesting it outside your own congregation. But I want you to increase more and more, verse 10. And here's what will help you. Study to be quiet. Make it your ambition to present and preserve quietness, ceasing, rest, that kind of spirit within yourself and the body of Christ. And to do your own business. Focus on your own affairs. Understand the realms of your responsibility and don't get into things that don't really concern you. How much harm gossip does. You know what's really sad whenever it's enveloped in pious language? I'm only telling you this so that you can pray about it. Oh really? Gossip is justified when you tell me that I'm being informed simply so I can pray about it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Peter says this, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but in your part he is glorified. But, so you can suffer and you can suffer for the cause of Christ and you can rejoice in that. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Isn't it remarkable that Peter sees it fitting, along with murder and theft and general evildoing, To add in being a busybody in other men's matters. Getting involved in other people's affairs. Sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong. And he puts it in with murder. And theft. I refer to our confession and catechisms on occasion. I try not to read lengthy quotes. I don't think it's helpful to read too much, but I want to read to you this morning what the larger catechisms says concerning the duties required in the ninth commandment. And just be thankful that I'm not dealing with the sins of the ninth commandment, because first it's longer, and second it's even more convicting. So what are the duties required of the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Here's what the wise Westminster divines put together. Listen carefully. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice 
and in all other things whatsoever. A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, already receiving of a good report, an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name, and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. That's the duties required. You go and read the sins yourself, and you may feel like I have felt on many occasions when I have read this. Am I allowed to speak? Am I allowed to speak? Do I have permission to talk? And indeed, that is the intention, to show how great a matter the the little fire kindleth when, when the tongue is unleashed, how easily it can inflict damage and in the body of Christ can cause there to be a disunity and an effect upon the brotherly love that ought to exist. That here we are, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, in union with the Son of God. We should be abounding in love toward one another, embracing one another, praying for one another, rejoicing over one another, and supporting each other in every way that we can and we ought. And yet how easily we can bring disunity and disharmony simply by saying a word without understanding the full context, not really knowing the whole story, not understanding exactly what's going on, and getting involved in things that don't really, they're just not really our business. And to partly help with that, not just to keep focused on your own business, Paul also tells us, and to work with your own hands. Work with your own hands. That is, find something to do. Idleness is dangerous. It doesn't help. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5. You'll see this expressed within a certain context of the body of Christ relating to widows. 1 Timothy 5. We will read from verse 9. Through verse 14, 1 Timothy 5, verse 9. And Paul has given very practical advice here to Timothy as he oversees the church. Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have received the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And with all they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. I will therefore that the younger woman marry, Bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Now, what's Paul saying here? He's giving advice. 
widows under the age of 60 years old should not be taken into the number of responsibility of the church. Now, widows, first and foremost, should be, families should be exhorted to take care of their own. That's their priority. But the church sometimes has to step in. But they should not step in where they're under 60 years of age, at least normally speaking, in normal circumstances. And for good reason. Even when they do step in, they are to be people that have served the church and labored and have a good reputation and character in terms of how they have lived. But there's a danger in helping. And you take in widows, and you take especially younger widows, and then, then they, they, you, you provide for them, and you set up this kind of charitable service to them, and they become idle. They don't have enough to do. And they begin to meddle in things, because when they're idle, they get busy doing something. And what happens is they begin, they learn to be idle. You see at verse 13, they learn to be idle. And what do they do? They wander about from house to house. Not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. They find something to do. And on this occasion, uh, what, what the context here is, the danger is with nothing to do and there's too much energy and strength to, to go to waste, and that, that if you provide a context for them to do nothing, then they're going to find something to do and what they will do will not be helpful. And so they will bring the gossip and they'll carry it from house to house, traveling around and bringing all the ill reports and all the stories that they're hearing. And that's not what you want to encourage. You don't want a church where that's going on. You don't want to have that kind of scenario, so encourage them to marry. If they're young enough, remarry. They'll have children again, perhaps, or responsibilities keeping them busy again so they can mind their own business and not be giving themselves to other people's business, learning to be idle rather than learning how to keep themselves busy. And this is a problem. Of course, the problem now is that, here's the thing, as, as Paul says, if you go back, and he, he discusses, he makes mention of the fact that they would uh, work with your own hands, when you're working with your own hands, you're busy. It takes time. You, you may be working seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day. And it makes it very difficult for you when you, you work so long through the day then to also travel around all the homes and tell all the gossip. And, and the problem now is that, that, that men, just as women, can get involved in this because, well, they don't have to. They don't have to actually move and walk around all the neighborhood and tell people all the gossip. You can do it over the telephone. You can do it via email. You can do it on social media. Oh, little social media posts with, with kind of covert, mysterious meanings that are behind it that are really kind of beginning to spread little things. This goes on. And people are wondering, what's going on there? Is there something going on? And, and then they know that. They're, they're just throwing a seed, throwing a little thing out there to cause disharmony and disunity. And it can be done in a fraction of a second. You don't have to leave your work, you don't have to leave your home. You can do it all. You can do so much damage in seconds. And that's what makes it even more dangerous today, and that's what we see more and more people getting involved. Because if you were working on that day, you couldn't do this. You wouldn't have time to travel around the neighborhood. But now you can sit there in your 30-minute office break, and you can just send an email and lift the phone and send a text message or whatever. Beloved, it ought not to be. It ought not to be. And Paul says then, look at it again, verse 11, as we commanded you. We've already told you this. Man, Paul was there just for a few weeks. He must have, 
his sermons must have been really long. I mean, he must have talked. He covered so much ground in a matter of weeks. Because he, he has this all the time. He says, as we told you before, as we commanded you, we, we, you've, we've gone over this. In the short time we were there, and this was the case here too, Paul is exhorting them, look, in these practical affairs, study to be quiet. Make it your ambition to be quiet. Keep to your own affairs and work with your own hands, keeping yourself out of mischief and the temptation to do things that will cause disharmony in the body of Christ. Secondly then, there must be a responsible profession, not just a required ambition, but a responsible profession. Verse 12, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. He's dealt with the walking of the Christian already. Chapter 2, verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto His kingdom and glory. Walking. And back then I argued the point that walking in Scripture is not so much about moving from point A to point B as it is about our movement with God and walking with God. Here it's not so much our walking with God as it is our walk before those that are outside the church, those that are not Christians. And our walk has to be in a certain fashion. In Colossians 4 verse 5, Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without In other words, we should be conscious of how we're living before those that don't believe. We should be aware that what we say and what we do will influence their thoughts and will have an impact on what they consider is true about the gospel. And so when Christians are hypocritical, when they they live as they ought not, then it brings a mixed message because immediately they think, well, he calls himself a Christian. But I heard him say this, or I saw her do that. And it brings an inconsistency that actually damages the outward testimony. But not only that, not only that, it has an impact on the church. And it causes disharmony in the church. If Christians would walk consistently outside the church, then that would help even with the harmony within the church. And so this is, again, an exhortation, walking honestly toward them that are without when I read that, I thought of David. How we walk before them. them and well, it was more when I read Colossians 4, 5, walking in wisdom toward them that are without. I thought of David in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's there on several occasions that we're told that David behaved himself wisely before Saul. So 1 Samuel 18, verse 5, David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. His conduct was constantly kept in his own mind, that how he's behaving himself is having an influence, and especially towards Saul. In verse 14 we read, And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. And then the following verse, verse 15, Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, and he was afraid of him. He was afraid. Saul was afraid when he saw the wise behavior and conduct of David. Why would that be? Why would that be? David, David acknowledges this very thing. He knows this by personal experience whenever he records in the 40th Psalm about this very matter. In Psalm 40 verse 3, He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. In other words, when Christians live the way they ought, before the ungodly, it has a sanctifying influence upon them. It will stop them and hedge them in often from their sins. I have, I have seen this with my own eyes. 
I've seen people who would give themselves to certain things and saying things and doing things and then because they're in my presence and they know that I do not approve of what it is they're saying or doing, that, that they actually change their behavior. They alter their conduct and they're doing it maybe out of respect. But whatever the case might be, they know something about me that actually impacts their behavior. I'm not changing my behavior. They're changing their behavior. They're considering their ways because of the way that I live. Now, if you live among the ungodly and you have a very bold testimony and you, have a, 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 you gain a measure of respect around them, you may see the same. And you may see them respond and respect to you. They begin to change and hedge in their ways and their language. It's not conversion. It won't take them to heaven, but at the same time, it causes them to think. Makes them aware of their sin. Because prior to that, they're saying whatever they like. And they, among their own friends, they speak freely and act freely without one thought that what they're doing and saying is wrong. And then in the presence of the Christian, they change. Paul exhorts this. Walk honestly toward them that are without. Keep a consistent Christian testimony wherever you go. And this is very important, especially in our love for the brethren. Remember what the Lord Jesus taught in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And so, what Paul really is saying here, the heart of the message in verse 12, when he says that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, it is a collective, honest living. An honesty that exists between Christians that the world can see and looks very different to the world they live in. They don't see Christians talking behind one another's backs and destroying their character. There's an honesty between them. And it bears this testimony that the Lord says, they will know then that you're my disciple. Is that not what we want? Is the world not fed up with a kind of Christianity that looks fraudulent from every angle? Thousands upon thousands of Christians turning on their TVs to watch some form of a Christianity that they, that they view. And you know what? The unbelievers know better. They know better. When they see those TV evangelists, so-called, when they see them spout their garbage and go over all their silly nonsense it has nothing to do with Christianity. Nothing. They blaspheme the name of Christ because what they marry to the gospel has nothing to do with the gospel whatsoever. And the unbeliever knows it. They know it. I have spoken. I have witnessed to at least one individual where I talked to them about the gospel. And as soon as I said, you must be born again, Immediately their mind went to TV evangelists and they said, why would I, why, that's, this garbage, that, that this born again stuff is garbage. 
That's the way the TV preachers speak. They say, you have to be born again and look at them. And they know them to be the hypocrites that they are. That has nothing to do with pious living and changed lives and the power of the gospel. And we have to be saddened and grieved that they associate the Christian message with something that is fraudulent. It's very hard to try and penetrate through the hardness of heart that has developed. We must walk honestly. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Thirdly then, there will be a resulting compensation. A resulting compensation, verse 12 goes on to say, and that you may have lack of nothing. Evidently, there were those that were unwilling to work, to find employment and give themselves to it. And this matter gets addressed even more directly in the second epistle to the Thessalonians. If you turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and read a few verses there, you see Paul brings this matter out even more uh, pointedly because there's the continued problem of people not laboring, not working, not providing for them and for their families. And then, of course, being a drain upon the church of Jesus Christ, expecting others who had more means to support them. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 8, Paul refers to himself, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. We, we provided our own means. And then he says, verse 9, Not because we have not power, in other words, we, we could have exacted from you support, but we didn't, to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. And I think Paul recognized they were living in a time where people didn't want to work, where they would rather not work and provide for themselves. And the best testimony would be, well, I'll work and show them that I'm not just here to make it easy for myself, and that the part of Christian living is gainful employment. And so he was a testimony to them in this fashion, in verse 10 he says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So we get more explanation on what he had commanded them before. And he says, Listen, this is what we told you, that if he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. You see, the idle person doesn't give themselves to employment, but gives themselves to sin. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So this is the exhortation. The church needed it desperately because many in the congregation were not interested in laboring and providing for themselves and for their families and instead were going around idly and it was causing disharmony in the body of Christ. And no doubt even part of that disharmony wasn't merely the tattle-tailing that was going on and the busybody uh, aspect of things, but even the fact that they, they, would, they would need material means to live and others in the body of Christ would give and support and have no problem, but then they would overextend and they would begin to think, what's going on here? Am I still expected to, to give to this person to provide? They're doing nothing. They're not interested in work. There I am working and I have to supply their means or, uh, for them to survive when they seemed to have no interest in working, and they could. And so this was causing disharmony in the body of Christ. And so if they would labor and work with their own hands, they would prevent this disharmony. 
Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, If any provide not for his own, and especially those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Even unbelievers know to provide for their families. How come those professing the name of Christ would not provide for themselves and for their families? And so if they would work with their own hands and give themselves to this, it would promote harmony. And the benefit would be that they would have lack of nothing. They wouldn't be in want. They wouldn't be running around needing handouts from people. And depending upon the support of others, they would, they would, be, they would have lack of nothing. Sometimes when you read the New Testament closely, you're amazed at what was going on in the body of Christ. You see, really, there were people there that had no interest in working? Right, yeah. And I'm, I'm worse than that sometimes. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, addressing the church, Paul says, Let him that stole steal no more, but let him work, but, let him rather, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands that which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So there may even have been there, let him that stole steal no more. Stop stealing. And it may be implying there that they were continuing to steal as they did prior to their conversion. That they thought, well, this is how we get by. We steal. Well, we're, we're Robin Hood. We're taking from the rich to feed the poor. And it's all <laughs> above board. And Paul said, no, this is not what you do. You stop the old practice. Work. Work with your hands. And work for gainful employment to the point that you don't just have enough for yourself, you have enough for others. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. The whole subject of labor, I don't think I need to go on too much about it here this morning, but when we see it, that is the lack of desire to work in these days, at times within certain well, when you see even the <laughs> some of the economic schemes that are pushed, aiding and abetting those who have no desire to work. Any one of us can fall in hard times. The body of Christ will always understand that. It will never cause disharmony. But when Christians don't work, when they don't provide and they have no interest in working, and appear to have no interest in working, that as well causes disharmony within the body of Christ. And our purpose then this morning is to see that the whole point of Paul giving this counsel here, verses 11 and 12 are developing how to increase more and more in brotherly love. You want to, you want to manifest true love in the body of Christ? Take to heart what I already told you, that you study to be quiet, that you do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. Now as we close, I thought about the Lord Jesus. I thought about him and his work. Not just how he would have helped his father Joseph as a carpenter. And just thinking about that. The hands that created the world. The hands that formed the world's forming wood into various shapes and working there in that workshop, creating things. It would have been it's amazing even just to think about that. But the real work of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
As he understood from twelve years of age, Luke 2.49, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Or rather, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business. And then John 9.4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. The Lord Jesus from twelve years of age was aware of this work, his father's business. And when he engaged in that business, finally at thirty years of age and gave himself to the ministry that he would participate in and, and throw himself into, he, he talks about it being work. Work. And I wondered, was there ever a busier person than the Lord Jesus Christ? Was there ever one that was so focused upon his own business there back in verse 11, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands? Was there ever one that more manifested doing your own business, sticking to your own affairs, Never once, even to a fraction, did Jesus Christ get involved in something that was nothing to do with him. Everything he did, everything he spoke to, everything he addressed, all that he was about was focused entirely about his own business. Or rather, should I say, the Father's business that was given for him to do. And he was so busy, he was so busy, that he had no time for any other business. He had no time for tattletales. He had no time for busybodies. He had no time for gossip. He had no time to engage in it or to entertain it from others. None. Because he was totally and completely given over to his own business. And I thought then, I thought, would it be wrong to say that the holier a man or a woman is, the busier they will be? I don't know if you can follow that out due to the limitations of our physical frame. The Lord knows we need to rest and all of that. I'm not saying... There isn't a place for rest, and he himself even rested. But it is holy business to be busy in that which you're called to do. And to be so busy in what you're called to do, you have no time for other things to do. You have no time to listen to the gossip. You have no time to hear the stories. You have no time to pass them on. Because you're given entirely to your own business, and you're minding your own business, and you're studying to be quiet. And you're working with your own hands. and It suffocates gossip. When everyone just focuses on their own affairs. This is the will of the Lord, beloved. Our Lord never, never gave himself to this business of destroying his body. Of affecting his people. Far from it, in fact. Just thinking of Isaiah 42. Turn over there. I'll just end with this. Isaiah 42. Isaiah the prophet speaks of the Messiah. gives some details of the one that would come that came on the scene 700 years after this was written. Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now note this, He shall not cry nor lift up his nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. 
A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. In other words, he's not going to be in the streets giving himself and lifting up his voice and dealing with matters that are none of his business. Dealing with things that will do harm to those that are already broken. Those that are already affected and influenced and feeling the impact of whatever's going on in their lives. He'll not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, of course, he preached and he heard, his voice was heard, but there was a context. He, he dealt only with the business that he was called to deal with. And so you wouldn't hear his voice in the street spreading rumors and stories about other people. That's our Lord. That's the way he lived. And that's the way we should live as well. I trust the Lord will help us, beloved. I hope this message will ring in your ears because at any given moment, Something may occur, and at any given moment, we may be tempted to share information that we have no business sharing. And it's right then, right then, we may impact and destroy the love of the brethren here in this body. Let us not be guilty of igniting that flame. Let us bow together before the Lord. God and Father, first we want to confess that Thy Word is truly a two-edged sword, and we're thankful that it has a cutting influence. Lord, there are things within our nature, in our character, in our flesh that need to be cut out like a cancer. We pray that thou wilt deal a death blow to everything that would bring disharmony to the body of Christ. We think of the prayer of our Lord Jesus who prayed so clearly that we would be one, long for the unity of those for whom he shed his blood. We pray that we would not in any way rebel against the purpose and will of the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to uphold what is true and right. May love cover a multitude of sins on the occasions when we hear that a brother or sister has fallen. Let us not be one that carries the news as if we're telling something that's wonderful and good. May our lips be so busy telling of the glories of the cross and the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ and praising the Lamb who was slain on our behalf, that they have little time for stories that do not edify. We pray, God, that Thou wilt forgive us where we have fallen short in this. Cleanse us of our sins. Renew a right spirit within us. And give us the Holy Ghost, that we may be preserved from the corruption that is within our flesh. So bless us then. We thank Thee for Thy Word. Hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against Thee. And we pray that Thou will bless our fellowship, our conversations with one another. Take us to our homes in safety. And may we return here tonight again to rejoice in Thee and to hear Thy precious Word. Hear us now. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit 
Be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.